Our sermon today is taken from Romans 14, verse 1 until 23. Here is the word of God. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, 
keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has thoughts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Thus says the Lord. Friends, today we're continuing in our series of the book of Romans. And if you've been with us throughout the series, you might remember that in chapters 1 to 11, Paul spent a lot of time teaching about theology, about the gospel, about the good news of the cross. And now from chapter 12 onwards, Paul's explaining to us all the practical day-to-day implications of all of the gospel theology that he just got done teaching, okay? And the practical day-to-day implications to all of that gospel theology is to love others. Because we received radical love from above, Romans 1 to 11, we are called therefore to show radical love for others. That's Romans 12 to 16, that's a practical implication. Now before this, in chapter 13, if you remember, Paul explained to us how that radical horizontal love is meant to be played out to those who are not Christians, right? Those who are outside of the church. How can a Christian radically love the general culture or the country that they live in? Well, the way to do that is by being good citizens. You remember that sermon a few weeks ago? As long as the laws of the land don't cause you to disobey God, just submit to him, do him. That's chapter 13. And now in chapter 14, Paul is explaining how Christians are to show that radical love also to other Christians who are in the church. And that's what we're about to study today. And look, if, if you're a Christian, and if you've been a part of the church for any amount of time at all, you probably would know that it's much harder to love other Christians in the church compared to loving non-Christians that are outside of the church. If we're honest, that's, that's usually the case. If you haven't noticed, a lot of us don't really like each other. We're, we're like a dysfunctional family. You know, we, we love each other, but then we also fight all the time. There's so much division between denominations, churches, even, even in the same church. Fights happen all the time. Churches split all the time. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but, but Paul here gives us one of the biggest reasons as why this often happens a lot. Okay, so, so let's get into it. There's three things I want to point out about how we can radically love our fellow Christians who are in the church from this passage. First point, what's at the heart of church infighting? Second point, how can we learn to stop? And third point, who's called to sacrifice first? Okay, what's at the heart of church infighting? How can we learn to stop? And who's called to sacrifice first? Let's start with our first point. So Paul begins here in the passage by by categorizing to us two different groups of people that we often find in church. And he describes them as the strong and as the weak. Okay, let's define who they are first before we move on. And in this passage, we see three different descriptions of who are the strong and who are the weak. First, let's go to verses 1 to 2. Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the other, uh, but while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, so the first distinction here that we see is that the weak are Christians who still believe that certain dietary laws apply to them, right? They can only eat certain things. They can't eat other things. Now, these would most likely be Christians who came from a Jewish background, right? Who's been observing dietary laws their whole lives from the Old Testament. They can't eat this. They can't, they can only eat that. And now that they're Christians, now that they're free in Christ, they still have these superstitious beliefs that certain meats are clean or unclean. 
I came uh, from a majority religion here in Indonesia, and I too abstained from eating a particular kind of meat growing up. And after I became a Christian, although I knew that there's nothing superstitious, you know, unspiritual about that meat itself, it, it took me a minute to be able to kind of get over it. It took me a minute to be able to eat that particular meat again because habits, old habits just don't break that easily. And the strong here are those who have no superstitious beliefs about what foods are clean or unclean, right? They, they understand their freedom in Christ. They know sin doesn't come from the outside, right? They know that sin is in here and that Christ has, has cleansed them so they have freedom in Christ about what to eat, what not eat. Okay, second description about the strong of the weak we see in verse five. Paul says, one person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. So again, similar distinction here, the weak, has superstitious beliefs not only about food, but about certain dates in the calendar year as being more spiritual than others, right? So they observe this liturgical calendar that consists of celebrating dates that's not actually prescribed in the Bible, okay? The, the, the strong, Paul says, don't do this. They don't have these extra biblical superstitions about certain days or, or weeks in the year, and they observe only the day of celebration that's actually prescribed in the Bible, and that is the weekly Lord's Day worship every Sunday. Um, just going to leave that there because I know that's a controversial topic. But let's move on to the last description about the strong and the weak in verses 21, uh, 20 to 21. It says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, Paul says. Everything's clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So, so Paul is saying here the strong understands that everything is indeed clean. All foods and all drinks even wine. The strong understand that alcohol isn't in itself unclean, and they can enjoy a glass of wine or two at a dinner party, you know? But the weak still may find certain drinks to be unspiritual, and their conscience are still affected when, when they drink it or see others drink it. And that's why Paul calls the strong here to just, just don't drink it when you're around the weak, and if it's affecting them in that way, just, just don't drink it, okay? So in a nutshell, the strong are those who have no extra biblical superstitions about ritualistic foods or drinks or calendar dates. And they're called strong because this indicates they truly understand their freedom in Christ and the gospel. And the weak are those who still have past ritualistic cultural habits or superstitions that entangle them. They can't seem to shake it off. And it's kind of suffocating their freedom in Christ and their experience of the gospel. By the way, let me just clarify something. And this is important. Paul is saying here that the strong are those who exercise their freedom in Christ, not those who abuse their freedom in Christ, okay? So, so don't get hammered and say, I'm just a mature Christian exercising my gospel of freedom. No, you're not. That shows that you're an immature Christian abusing your gospel of freedom. Remember, Paul explicitly warns us against drunkenness and drunken parties at the end of chapter 13. And also, if, if you don't eat meat, you know, if you say you're a vegetarian, you know, or you choose not to drink certain drinks for health reasons or other reasons, that doesn't necessarily mean you're weak either. The weak here are those who abstain from certain foods and drinks specifically because they have superstitious beliefs. There's some sort of inerrant, you know, supernatural evil in, in these things, okay? So now that we've laid down that foundation, we can go on to the main point of this passage. And if you haven't already noticed, when, you read the, when we read the passage earlier, you, you probably caught on that Paul's main interest here is not to make the weak stronger. It's not. Now, is that implied? Yes. Does Paul want the weak to be stronger? Of course. Does he want people who, 
uh, are suffocated by extra-biblical superstitions to no longer be suffocated by them and experience the freedom of Christ? Of course he does, but that's not the main goal here. Paul's main goal here is to create peace between the weak and the strong because they're fighting all the time. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats, in other words, the strong, despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains, in other words, the weak, pass judgment on the one who eats. All right, let's try and make this clear. There are people at Covenant City Church who, because of their own personal convictions, choose not to drink alcohol or even eat certain meats. But yet, I know that some of these people feel despised by others who choose to not abstain from certain drinks and meats. They feel a little bit bullied even, pressured to partake in something that their conscience says not to do. The strong would tell them, you know, stop being so legalistic. Just drink this, just eat, just eat that. Exercise your freedom in Christ. But look at what Paul is telling the strong here. He's saying, don't do that. Don't despise the weak. What does he mean to despise? Well, I think what Paul is saying here is this. If you're honest, I think, most of the time, the reason why you pressure the weak to drink wine or, you know, whatever, is not because you actually love them. It's not because you actually want them to experience gospel freedom, but it's actually because you're kind of annoyed at them. (laughs) Or the word that Paul uses here in verse 3 is that you despise them. You know, you see a Christian choose to not drink wine at a dinner party and you think to yourself, oh my gosh, you know, just have a glass of wine. You're weirding me out. And because you're not drinking, I'm feeling all weird about drinking. You know, just have a glass of wine. (laughs) And the actual reason of why you want them to drink isn't because you want them to grow in their Christian freedom, but it's because you're annoyed at them. And Paul here is saying, don't do that. Stop pressuring them. Don't despise those who abstain. Let them be. If you want to have a glass of wine, have a glass of wine. Don't worry about them. But on the other hand, Paul's also addressing the weak or the one who abstains. Paul's saying, you you too, be careful. Because if that person struggles with despising you, you may struggle in your heart with passing judgment on them, you see. And we know this to be true, that usually people who choose to abstain from eating or drinking certain things, or uh, they can start to feel maybe perhaps a little bit superior over those who don't abstain because their lifestyle does require more discipline. It does. It does require more self-control, you see it. But it's easy to start believing that because of that, they are therefore superior over those who choose not to abstain. And that's Paul's goal here in in this passage. The strong don't despise the weak, and the weak don't pass judgment on the strong. But instead, Paul says, welcome each other, like Christ has welcomed each other, or you. Paul wants to address an issue that can often cause division in the church back then, which is uh, between what to abstain from and not what to abstain from. Now, I do admit that we're hearing this right now and we're thinking, well, you know, this issue about eating and drinking or liturgical calendar days, it might be a big issue back then, but that's, it's not really a big issue now. That's not what's dividing the church now. Today, we have other issues that are dividing the church, right? Things like our views and social justice, or progressive Christians versus traditional Christians, things like that. And and you're absolutely right. The gray area issues that are being talked about today may not be the same exact ones that were being talked about back then. But the heart issue that causes the division, I want to propose to you, it's still the same. Why do issues that shouldn't divide the church still end up dividing the church today as it did back then? 
because at, at the heart of it, we still haven't learned, I don't think, we, we haven't learned how to handle these conversations well. And that's what Paul gets into here uh, in the next part of the passage, the root issue of the problem. Okay, so let's move on to our second point. How can we learn to stop? So the first thing we got to do, okay, in order for us to get to the bottom of it, first, in verse 4, I think we have to learn how to distinguish between identifying a wrong and being judgmental. That's really important. Look at verse 4. Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Now, okay, some of you read this and you think, well, wait a minute, Paul. Weren't you judging people just now? You know, didn't you call some people weak and some people strong? Is that not judging? Well, no. Identifying a wrong or a weakness doesn't necessarily mean that you're judging. Judging is when you go beyond identifying a wrong and feeling personally superior over the person who did the wrong. You see, if a husband physically abuses his wife and, you know, you say, well, that's just wrong. You can't do that. And the husband responds, how dare you judge me? You think you're better than me? Who do you think you are? What, what do you then say? You know, you don't say, oh, you're right. I'm no better than you. So, you know, I can't say anything. Carry on. You wouldn't say that. You shouldn't say that. I hope you won't. What you should say is this. Look, I'm not judging you. I don't feel personally superior over you because you're doing this. The Bible says that I'm a sinner too and I have the potential to do just as bad if God didn't have grace on me. I'm not, I don't feel superior over you. But you know what? It's still wrong. You still got to stop doing it. You see, identifying a wrong and being judgmental are two different things. You can identify a wrong without feeling superior over the person who committed it. And here, I think, is the heart issue of why the church can often be so unnecessarily divided over issues that really shouldn't cause that much division. It's because we enter into these gray area conversations with a judgmental heart. We go beyond just identifying an immaturity on the other side, but we enter into the conversation with a sense of superiority. Now, let me break this down a little bit more. How does entering into the conversation with a sense of superiority make it hard for Christians to talk about gray areas in the Christian life? Well, because when you feel superior over someone else, usually you become more careless about what you say and how you say it, don't we? You've experienced this. You know, when, you, when you're talking to someone who you think is above you, what happens? You tend to be more careful about your words. You tend to be more mindful about what you say, more sensitive about your tone, right? But when you're speaking to somebody who you think is below you, usually we become less aware about how we come across, right? About our tone or our words or our body language, you see. So one root issue here of why these gray area conversations in the Christian life can be so divisive is because when we talk about them, we feel like we're talking to someone who's below us from the other side. And the person on the other side can smell that a mile away. And when they smell it, they get defensive, you know, and then things get messy. Let's call this attitude insensitive superiority. That's what Paul is saying here in verse four. Don't be judgmental. Don't have insensitive superiority. It doesn't mean you can't identify a wrong or a weakness, but when you do, do it without feeling superior over the other person, because that'll change the way you interact with them. Now, another root issue I think we see in the passage that makes these gray area conversations so intense is also because of anxiety. 
Let me explain what I mean first, then I'm going to show you where I got it from the passage. A lot of us, when we have these kinds of conversations, okay, we, we think something like this. If I don't correct this wrong or this immaturity immediately, this person will fall, and then if more people fall like this, my church will be at risk, and then all of Christendom will be at risk, right? And I got to kill this issue right here, right now. That's the attitude we bring into the conversation sometimes when we talk about these, these gray areas. And what Paul, I think, here is saying at the end of verse 4 is he's saying this. Hold on a second, okay? Take a breather. Look at what he says under verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul saying, calm down. Yes, sometimes you need to address certain issues before it causes too much destruction. But look, most of the time, you really shouldn't come out with, come out with guns a-blazing. Okay, don't let your anxiety cause you to preemptively strike and treat a situation with a level of, of intensity which really hasn't reached there yet. You know, if this person chooses to drink, that doesn't mean that your church is about to be destroyed by legalism, okay? Or if you find another Christian who maybe you think overvalues social justice above the gospel a little bit too much, that doesn't necessarily mean that your church is about to be swallowed up by liberalism. Paul's saying, calm down. Now, if it gets there, by all means, address it. But most of the time, it's your anxiety that's taking over. It's causing you to be more intense than you probably need to be right now. Okay, the Lord is able to make him stand. Like, it's, it's okay. So these, I think, are the two root issues we see in verse 4 of why these gray area conversations end up being so intense and splitting the church is because we enter into them with insensitive superiority and heightened anxiety. And that's why there's infighting everywhere. Remember, Paul continues in verses 6 to 12, we are not the Lord. We're not the Lord. The reason to why we often fall into insensitive superiority and heightened anxiety in these gray area conversations is because we forget we're not the Lord. And Paul says this seven times in the next six verses. We're not the Lord. Verse six, if someone observes certain liturgical dates and some don't, they do it to the Lord. We're not the Lord. Verse seven to eight, none of us die or live to ourselves, but we die and live to the Lord. Those people don't belong to us. They belong to the Lord. Verse 11, the Lord is the one who has the right to say, every knee will bow to me, not us. Verse 12, each of us will give an account to the Lord. Not to us, not to me. Here's the point. The church isn't divided because we're talking about our differences. The church is divided because while we talk about our differences, we forget that we are not the Lord. And because of that, we enter into these conversations with insensitive superiority and a heightened sense of anxiety. And if we keep doing this, you know, if, if, if we do this enough, you know what will happen? This is what's going to happen. People on the other side will slowly turn into 2D caricatures of whatever position they're holding. Okay? And all of a sudden, the church is going to be filled with either ors. Christians who are on the left versus Christians who are on the right. Liberal Christians versus Orthodox Christians. Progressive Christians versus traditional Christians. Social justice Christians versus non-social justice Christians or whatever you want to call them. And they become 2D, you know? And I, I dare bet that if you take some time to think about somebody at your church right now, I'm, I'm, I dare bet that you can think of a certain person who you have caricatured as a 2D being 
rather than a complex individual. And your heart slowly becomes drier and drier toward that person. And that's how small sparks become huge forest fires. You know, when the trees in the forest are dry, the smallest spark can become unstoppable. That's the first thing we gotta do. If we wanna grow to becoming the kind of people who can have conversations about the gray areas of the Christian faith, okay, in a way that glorifies the Lord and protects the unity of the church, then each and every one of us must be self-critical and open to the fact that our intensity when talking about these things may not necessarily be birthed out of a sense of deep faithfulness to the truth, but our intensity is actually birthed because we still have issues of insensitive superiorities and heightened anxieties that we have not yet repented from. If you're not open to that, then I don't know how things will get better. Both sides have, have to be self-critical. However, you know how when uh, two, two kids fight and it's kind of both their faults and then a parent or a teacher comes in and they say, all right, shake hands now, say sorry. And there's always that four second awkward moment where both kids are just kind of looking at each other, you know, and they're signaling with their eyes, you say sorry first. No, you say sorry first. You know what I'm talking about? Paul here at the end of our passage today tells us who has to say sorry first. He does. There's, although everybody needs to be self-critical, there is one group that Paul calls to lay down their pride first. Let's go to the last point. Who's called to sacrifice first? All right, Let's, let me read verse 14 and tell me if you can identify who it is, which group Paul puts more weight of responsibility on here. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Who's Paul addressing here? And continues to address, by the way, till the end of the passage. The strong. He's saying, look, I get it. You have a strong understanding of the gospel. You enjoy your gospel freedom about foods, drinks, liturgical dates. But look, if what you eat or if what you drink is causing your brothers and sisters to stumble. Just give it up. Give it up. Don't do it in front of them. Lay down your rights. And if you persist to eat and drink these things in front of the weak because of some twisted sense of this is somehow helping them experience gospel freedom, you'll actually end up hurting them. Look at verse 15. You'll destroy the one for whom Christ died. How will you destroy them? Look, here is best case scenario, right? You succeed, okay? You persist in drinking a glass of wine or two in front of them because you're trying to make a point, right? And then you maybe pressure them to drink as well a little bit by hints and jabs here and there. And then they end up giving in. They have a glass of, of wine too. And you think in your head, I did it. <laughs> you know, I've, I've protected Christendom from legalism. You're welcome, Jesus. Guess what? You haven't. You haven't. You know what you did? All you did was teach the weak that it's okay uh, for their consciences to be peer pressured to change. That's all you did. You didn't help them experience gospel freedom. You communicated that it's okay to break your convictions because other people pressured you to do it. You didn't make them into people who could enjoy the gospel and, the go and gospel freedom more. You made them into people who would be willing to let go of their personal conscience for the sake of appeasing others. 
You're destroying them, Paul says. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's best case scenario. They drink it. But you know what usually actually happens? Look at verse 16. Do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Usually what happens is this. The good thing that you're trying to promote to them in this scenario, a glass of wine, they'll end up being more allergic toward it. They'll speak of it as evil. Because when you constantly pressure someone, that's what happens. You're not helping them. You're patronizing them. And you know what patronized people do? They end up being extra resistant about the thing that they're being patronized for. You're causing what's actually good to be spoken of as evil. They're going to be more allergic to it. It never helps. It doesn't. Let it go. Lay it down. But it's my right to drink wine. Well, if you love your rights more than you love your brother and sisters in Christ, that's an issue. That's an issue. Remember what Paul says here in verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. This isn't in my notes, but I want to point out here, we reform people, we're very good at being against the culture, which is good. We're very good at, you know, not giving in and it's okay if people don't like us, which there's value to that. But look at this. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. It doesn't mean we're being people pleasers, but there is a sense in which, you know, there's a tact about you. There's a wisdom about you and how you, how you go about doing this. It doesn't mean the more hated you are, the better it is. So then let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Verse 19. The strong give it up. Now, why do you think that is? Why does Paul put a heavier burden of weight on the strong? He repeats it again in verse 20 to 21, by the way. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. He addresses the strong again till the end of the passage. And I think there's about 13 to 14 commands here directed to the strong, only four to five commands directed to the weak. Why is that? Why do you think? And it's actually the pattern of a lot of places in the Bible. Think about Ephesians 5, when talking about Christian marriage. Paul spends three verses instructing the wives, who culturally was weaker at the time, and seven verses instructing the husband, who culturally had more power at the time. More burden lays on the husband. Same with Peter, uh, 1 Peter, and many more passages. Why is that? Think about this. In the Bible, more power is often coupled with more expectation to sacrifice. Why is that? Well, because that's the Christian story, is it not? Let, let me end with this. Everyone, and I mean everyone, believes in a story about the world, about how we got here, about where we're going, and that grand narrative you believe about this world communicates a truth about what the good life is and how we get there. Okay, some worldviews say this, the good life can be achieved with power. Power is the answer, right? The strong must eat the weak to evolve. And if we evolve enough, we'll get to true shalom, to the good life, evolution. Or we must build a military and defeat the non-believers who won't submit to God, right? As some religions would display. 
For many worldviews, power is the answer. But for other worldviews, power is the enemy. Right? The good life can actually be achieved when no one has or desires any power. But for the Christian, it's neither of those. True shalom, the good life, isn't found when the powerful wield the sword over the weak. We call that tyranny. Nor is it found uh, when there's no power structure at all. That's, that's naive. That wouldn't happen. For the Christian, true shalom, the good life, can be found when those who are in power are the ones that say, I'll sacrifice first. The good life can be found when those who are strong say, I'll give in first. I'll lay down my rights first. It may not be fair, but that's fine. When the strong is the first one to extend their hand, when the strong is the first one willing to sacrifice, that's when the Christian worldview says true shalom can start to begin in a community or in a relationship. You know why? Because that's what happened on the cross. The grand narrative of the Bible says this, that the good life can exist because the most powerful being in the universe extended his hand first to us. You see, he laid it down first. He took it first so that those who are weak may be strong, may flourish, may live. That's our story. That's our grand narrative. That's our worldview. So that's why here Paul over and over again puts the burden of weight on the strong. Because for Christians, that's the blueprint of reality. Peace can flourish when the strong lay down their rights first. So here's my prayer for Covenant City Church and for other churches in the city and this country that we would take this passage to heart. As a whole, we are probably more divided than we've ever been and continue to be as a church. Let's all pray that the Lord would help us continue to repent from any insensitive superiorities or heightened anxieties that may still, still exist in, that, in us and it's spilling out in our conversations. And let us first and foremost worry about laying down our rights rather than exercising them at the expense of others starting with those of you who claim you're strong. Will you do that? Let us ponder on the cross. Let us think about the grand redemptive history and let that blueprint of reality play itself out in the way we interact, we interact with one another. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we confessed our inability to differentiate between how intensely we should talk about something, which issues fall under gray, which are black and white, and it's all very mixed up and we're all very confused. And I pray that you would have more mercy upon your church and that you would be kind to your children and your people here as we journey on as one people toward the promised land, divided as we might be, by denominations and different things like that, and, and perhaps some of those divisions uh, organizationally and organically are, are good and are healthy for the flourishing of, of your people. But I think we all agree that there are unhealthy divisions that exist among these lines that we've draw, drawn for ourselves. Help us identify which lines are unhealthy, which lines are, and cover all of this with the ability 
for us to love one another in the way that you have loved us. And that as we talked about earlier, even in our liturgy, that we would take out the speck in our own eyes uh, before we, um, or the log in our own eyes before we take out the speck in our brothers. Help us, Father, be more like you, represent you, speak like you, talk like you, sacrifice like you for the unity of your people, that the gospel message may go forth and that your name may be proclaimed accurately, not just by what we say, but also by the way we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.